sure hope you're doing well. Uh, man, I don't know if you all follow the uh, church Facebook page or if you follow Pleasant View Campus's Facebook page, but uh, they did some awesome things yesterday. So when, when this whole thing got started, one of the things we used to do to kind of let the community know we were here is we would show up at the laundromats with a whole jars full of quarters, and we would help wash people's clothes or wash their clothes for them and all that kind of stuff. Well, Pleasant View Campus did that yesterday there in the Belton area, and then their youth also did a car wash uh, one on one of the main roads down to Anderson. That was pretty cool that they were representing Jesus in those two areas. <clears throat> And, uh, and just want to let you know, kind of follow up what Paul said, that, uh, you know, this whole invitation business, uh, you know, Easter is this whole, it's the time when people are most likely and most open to, the, to being invited to church. Statistically, it just is. And so when we did the Blueprint series, we talked about relational evangelism, which is a very scary idea for most of us. So what does that mean? Like, I got to get a person to kneel at my couch and give their heart to Jesus or share four spiritual laws. You know, what does it mean to kind of do that? And so what we said is it's basically doing the, living the 3G lifestyle. And, and this is the time of year the 3G lifestyle is so important. And what does that mean? Well, first is this. It's, it's you pray for the people you're going to invite. Don't just do a cold invite. Begin praying for people. I was on the trails yesterday. I was all by myself. And, uh, man, just started asking God, who is it you would like for me to invite to Easter? Listen, that might be a destiny-altering event for them. That's how significant this is, you know? So like I was praying, I had a couple different groups in my heart and my life that I was thinking about, but this is what it means. You begin praying for the people you're thinking about giving a card to, and then you keep them in the grip of your, of your friendship. I'll never understand the, the idea in Christianity that Christians are not supposed to have any cruddy buddies. We're all supposed to have people that don't know Jesus. Of course we are. I think that's the whole purpose of salt and light. And so we're supposed to have those folks. Well, who are some of those people that are in your friendship? They love you. They value you, but they don't know your Jesus. Well, gap, grip, and then maybe this coming Easter is the time for you to invite them to an event of grace. Maybe it's a time for you to invite them to one of the services at the church and say, hey, why don't you come and be a part of this with me? I'll meet you out there. And so like the people, I get this all the time. I heard there's going to be this big slide. I heard there's going to be kettle corn. Well, it sounds a lot like marketing. Guess what? That's exactly what it is. Okay, it doesn't sound like it is unapologetically the same people will write me and say, Tom, worship shouldn't be entertaining. I was like, says who? You know what the opposite of entertaining is? Boring. That's what the opposite of that is. And so let's make the worship to God as boring as possible so we can all come here and shoot ourselves in the head. You know, that's not what this whole thing's about, for heaven's sakes. Christians ought to be a generally happy people. And you all aren't doing too well at that today, just to let you know. So then next Sunday, we're giving you this card this week, okay? Let me tell you this. I'm only going to tell you and the other services. But um, here, here, here's, here's the thing. Next Sunday, we're trying something we have never tried before as a church. The board is literally taking a major financial risk, actually, next Sunday. And we're going to give you something that you can use for gap, grip, and grace uh, with a specific individual or a specific family. It'll be a gift for a specific person. We can't afford to do this for everybody in your life. But next Sunday, we will give you something that you can give specifically to a person to invite them to come to Easter. And so I hope you'll come, be a part of that. Everybody's going to be talking about it. It's going to be absolutely wonderful, and you don't want to miss because otherwise you'll be a loser. So that's kind of the whole deal. So I hope you'll come and at least think about that for next Sunday uh, as we give you that. So this week's the card. Next Sunday's the something special. Lord, thank you so much for these wonderful people, the high honor of being able to share with them what's on my heart today. Lord, you have just been overwhelming me with the topic of the morning. And so, Lord... uh, (laughs) Communicate clearly, I pray, through me. 
Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. We don't even need my words. We just need your spirit to speak to our hearts. So we open ourselves to that in your name. Amen. Uh, we started this whole series, if you're just visiting, by basically acknowledging that the book of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, has one clear agenda, if you will. And it's basically this. The, the agenda from Genesis to Revelation is to kind of clear, make, uh, make it under clear that this is all about God's kingdom coming. That's what the whole agenda is, God's kingdom coming. And so Jesus even prayed this. You remember? He said, this is how you pray. Thou, uh, your, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is about God's kingdom coming. But then the question is, what in the world does it mean, God's kingdom? What is that all about? And so we've been using this definition. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and God's blessing. Now pause. Because if you're like me, you will eventually you immediately rush to, yeah, but how does that happen? Don't do that yet. Think just a moment about the idea. What would it be like to live in a family, to live in a marriage, to live in a community of people where this was happening? God's kingdom is God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and God's blessing. Wouldn't that be a cool thing to think about? Wouldn't that be a cool idea to at least contemplate? Now, if you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, now we're going into the how piece. This is seen most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is sort of taught hand in hand with God's kingdom from Genesis to Revelation. If God's kingdom is the story of Scripture, the point of Scripture is to introduce us to Jesus Christ. Now, in order for God's kingdom to come, something had to happen. Something significant had to happen that would allow our relationship with God to be repaired because something happened in all of time and history that allowed our relationship with God got severed and we could no longer be with God. And so in order for that to kind of God's kingdom to come, this gap had to be repaired, had to be restored. And this kind of theme verse for the series sums up exactly what Jesus did to restore that relationship. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now listen, if you're just visiting and you missed the first couple, this is basically where Jesus or where God dwells. That's what that means, behind the curtain in the sanctuary. Where Jesus, who went before us, Jesus went before Tom, has entered on Tom's behalf. Isn't that the bomb diggity? You didn't know you were that valuable, did you? But apparently, Jesus went on your behalf. You, the person you woke up with this morning with the drool across the pillow and stuff stuck in their eye, that person, apparently, Jesus went before that person, has entered on our behalf, and he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And this is absolutely stunning because what that means is that big event I told you that we needed to have happen to repair the gap, this was it. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. And so this is sort of where we are so far. Jesus is this high priest. He's the great high priest who apparently takes us now behind the curtain. And we are now granted all access to God the Father. You are a very special people. God has given you people, you should be happy, all access 
to God the Father. And the stunning thing is, when we got there, when we got behind the curtain, what we discovered there was a good Father who desires to give us good gifts. Jesus did that for us, and now we're standing in the presence of God, and we see this good Father who gives us good gifts. And the first gift we talked about last week, uh, Matt led us in worship, and Matt talked about the cleaning of the hands thing. Do you remember? And what Matt said, showed us was, the first gift the good Father desires to give us through Jesus is this, to make us clean by removing all the shame-producing events in our lives. That's a gift from the good Father. He says, all y'all can be made clean because it's a gift from the Father. And when Jesus takes us behind the curtain and we see this good Father, we see a God who desires to give his children good gifts, just like I want to give my kids good gifts. God desires to give us the gift of his presence and the gifts of removing our shame. And apparently, the good Father desires to give us rest. Desires to give us rest. In chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Hebrews, the word rest is repeated 11 different times. And now we all know something about this. In fact, some of you, you come to church for the 30 minutes of rest you're preparing to partake of right now. And I'm not offended by that. I think some of the most spiritual things some of you could do is take a good nap. And so that's fine if that's your deal. That's fantastic. I bless that and go. The offering's already done. You can just take a nap. Take a nap. That's fine. Just snooze away. If you snore, you get an elbow. But anyway, other than that, it's fine. So we all know the exhaustion that comes from the demands of our jobs and our lifestyles and raising kids. And some of us know the exhaustion that comes from raising small kids or, or maybe raising teenagers. And you teenagers, you know the exhaustion of raising your parents. You know what that's about. I understand. And some of us know the exhaustion of dealing with finances. Some of us are living paycheck to paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. Maybe the bills always outstack, you know, the, the income. Some of us know the exhaustion of dealing with aging parents or maybe dealing with someone in the home who's fighting illness. We all know the exhaustion of trying to complete a project or get something turned in or the grades turned in or, or maybe the exhaustion of fighting an addiction. And some of us even know the exhaustion of living with it in some kind of emotional battle or living with someone who is fighting an emotional battle. Whatever it is, if I talk about rest, everybody in the room is convinced there's a need to understand and there's a need for rest. Fair? We all get that. The writer of Hebrews is addressing a people who are absolutely exhausted and in need of rest. But the tiredness that they have is not what you might think. In fact, the tiredness that they are dealing with isn't where any of you have gone in your mind so far this morning. This isn't exhaustion or weariness that a quick nap is going to fix. This isn't an exhaustion or weariness that just time down is going to fix. The writer of Hebrews is actually talking about a weariness that is much deeper than just physical weariness. He's talking about being soul weary. Burden beyond what one can bear. Burden so greatly that they, we stay awake at night and we look at the ceiling in our bedroom because we're so burdened by whatever it is we're carrying. Or maybe we get up and watch some quality television at 3 a.m. in the morning. We're so burdened we can't sleep. He's talking about carrying a shame or a guilt 
that haunts us all the time. So much so that we never want to sit alone or, or sit in silence because whenever that happens, shame and guilt is the unhealthy dark place our mind goes to. The writer of Hebrews is speaking of living with a sense of deep regret about what might have been or deep regret about what actually happened. These things all lead to a deep, deep weariness of soul. And now, of course, we're all drawn into this scripture because you understand this isn't about taking a nap. Because my suspicion is there's a good many of us in this room who are exhausted right now at the soul level. It's not simply being tired. It's being exhausted because of sin's consequence or life's demand. What is interesting when we think of rest is we usually think of a place. I, on Sunday mornings, wake up thinking about resting on the couch at 2.30 this afternoon. And I shall rest and rest well. You can come by. You can play Twister in the living room in front of me. It will not impact me whatsoever. I will see you in about three hours after a Sunday morning, and I will wake up. Kids come in. Kids play. They move me around. All that happens. I'm still sleeping. That's just a place of rest for me on Sunday afternoons. Some of us think about a place of rest uh, where we get to bed early. Some of us think about maybe a place of rest of going to the beach, or there's beach people, and of course, you know, there's mountain people. So some of you think about going to the mountains, or maybe some of you think about taking a cruise or a trip somewhere as a place of rest. Well, historically, for the Hebrew people, rest was the same for them. They thought of rest as a place. The people of Israel were in slavery, the antithesis of rest. And Moses led the people out of slavery with the idea of heading to a place of rest called the promised land. But the people who exited Egypt as slaves never got to see the promised land. The whole generation that left Egypt that were in slavery, who were headed to the promised land, actually never got to see the promised land. Their children entered the promised land under Joshua, but not the exiting generation. And this is a big deal and why I bring this topic to you today. The people leaving Egypt sought rest of a place just like we do when we plan to get away. But their need, and our need, was greater than a nap on a couch. For the Hebrews, and I think perhaps for some of us, there was a weariness producing cancer in their hearts and lives that they were not addressing. And Hebrews 3.19 reveals exactly what that cancer was. So we see they, the exiting generation, were not able to enter the promised land. Why? Because of their unbelief. Now this is a huge point for you to understand as we move forward. When Hebrews talks about rest... It isn't speaking of taking a nap or a vacation. It's actually dealing with a much deeper issue, a much more destructive force at work in our lives. What the good father is offering us behind the curtain is much grander than a time to stick your feet in the sand or look out on some mountain vista. He is seeking to address the unrest that comes from your unbelief. 
Hear what I just said. He is seeking to address the unrest that comes from our unbelief. So if unbelief in my heart, in your heart, leads to a lack of rest, a weariness of soul, maybe we should talk about it. Maybe the reason we're all so exhausted has nothing to do with the fact we're burning the candle at both ends. That may be true, but maybe the real weariness we're experiencing is because of our belief system. Maybe the real weariness that's pulling us down is because we don't believe. And if so, what is it we don't believe? Well, the opposite, if you will, of unbelief is faith. Fair? The opposite of unbelief is, yep, that's going to happen. The definition we frequently will use for faith around here is this. God's who he says he is, and God's going to do what he says he's going to do. That's what faith is. So now just pause for a moment and just think about the areas of unbelief in your life, in my life. Anybody struggle with the fact that God's who he says he is? Anybody have any unbelief related to that? How about this? Anybody else in the room wrestle with the fact that God's going to do what he says he's going to do? Areas of finances or health or repairing relationships? Anybody else? Maybe that unbelief is what's leading to some of your unrest. So if unbelief in my heart is causing this, then maybe I ought to look at what I have faith in. Hebrews actually gives us a definition for faith in chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. But there was a generation of Hebrews who left Egypt as slaves that did not live with faith in God, the good father. And I would suggest, I would suggest that alive could become that same kind of generation. Hear me out on this. I think, because I see it in my own life, I think we could become a generation living in unbelief or maybe squelching our unbelief by living in some false sense of control. And what happens is faith becomes a non-player in the lives of believers. We become a people of reason and intellect, which I love. I'm not putting that down. But we do not live any longer as a people of faith. For many of us, we could not recall the last time God called us to a step of faith or a risk on his behalf. Fair? As you sit here and you're engaging with me in your own thoughts, you could not point to the last time you took a step of faith in the name of God. Said another way, we cannot recall the last time God called us to obey and we couldn't see where that obedience was going to take us, but we did it in a way. We cannot recall the last time God called us to a radical gift of generosity because it didn't make sense in our minds, even though it may have been a prompting in our hearts. We cannot recall the last time God prompted us to take a risky conversation that would make the sweat form on our brow and our stomach start doing flip-flops because we didn't want to step outside of that zone. But we couldn't recall the last time we took a step of faith. Or maybe even beyond that, we couldn't recall the last time God took us out of our comfort zone, even to another place where we were not in control. Truth be told, for many of us, for many of us, we are more comfortable being a following people as long as it doesn't require faith. And so our prayers around family altar and our prayers in our personal walk with the Lord are all about what we control. Lord, please help our children and make them, here's what I want you to do in their lives. Check, 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 check. Fair? 
Lord, here's our finances. I'm sure you're aware because you see all things. And if you could just add $20,000 to the bottom line, I'm pretty much sure I would be more religious. Fair? When's the last time? Whoa, sorry. When's the last time? When's the last time God called you to a level of faith and you said, well, I'm a man of faith. I'm a woman of faith. Faith has become a predictable science in the modern church. So much so, we cannot see our own unbelief in God because we've covered it by what makes us comfortable and feel like we're in control. And here's why all this should matter to you. Unbelief that is unaddressed, friends, leads to unrest. I have great friends who will come and talk to me about marriage or money or maybe just, Tom, I just don't like my life and go get on vacation. I'm going to get a vacation. When I get vacation, it's all going to be better. And guess what? The problem with vacation is that they go. And wherever you are, you are. Nobody wrote that down, so apparently I didn't blow you away with that one. The issue isn't, the issue is not the schedule. The issue is that unbelief that is unaddressed leads to unrest. The Hebrew people who were called out of Egypt with unbelief and in fact grew to resent the good father because of their unbelief. And this is absolutely stunning to me. Because these people saw God do miraculous things daily. They leave Egypt, they're hauled around the wilderness, but they don't believe. And they had a cloud of pillar of cloud that led them around during the day. And then at night, there was this pillar of fire that led them around at night. Anybody seen a pillar of fire before? I never have. Well, that'd be an awesome thing to see. Can you imagine? Can you imagine all of us walking out there on the front by the fountain and seeing a pillar of fire? And then, oh, okay, here we go. You know, can you imagine what that would be like? That's what happened. How about this? They're getting ready to cross the Red Sea, and the Egyptians are kind of coming down on them. They got Hummers and all these different things, and they're coming at them like this, and they come across the Red Sea, and all of a sudden they step down, the water goes whoop, and they go walking across on the dry ground, get to the other side, and the Red Sea goes whoosh. That's the sounds. It goes like this, and then all of a sudden they're protected from the enemies. Have you ever seen, can you imagine walking up to the edge of Hartwell and say, can you imagine, and all that, what you'd see? But anyway, can you imagine all that that's there? No, that's exactly what these people saw. They went to bed hungry at night. They're worried about what they're going to eat. And God says, I got this. And God became like a fast food delivery dude. And he delivers manna every night, which literally means, what is that? And the people walked out, and guess what they said? What is that? Very good. What is that? And they started picking up this manna and stuffed it in their mouths. And it was fantastic. But eventually, after a little period of time, who, by the way, who's ever had manna up on the front yard when you woke up in the morning? But not just that. These people got to a point where like, you know, Lord, this manna you're providing every night, it's getting kind of old. You know, can you not make anything new? You know, we need a new recipe. You know, can you do something different? <laughs> Any moms ever heard it? But anyway, so God says, I got you. He brings Kentucky Fried Chicken for over 2 million people. That is in the Bible. That's in the Bible. It, they don't call it that yet because it hadn't been invented. But he brings this quail for 2 million people because they got tired of manna. Who's ever seen that? Anybody ever sat in the woods and prayed for a buck? Not me either. So don't send an email. But anyway, isn't that true? These people were waiting for two million birds, and the birds show up, and these people, guys, these people were overwhelmed with miracles, all this stuff, and yet they did not believe. And instead, the people would whine and complain and disobey God. And the amazing thing about all this is God's response in spite of their unbelief. 
They despised God's blessing. I'm so tired of this manna. And they had no faith in him. They simply didn't trust that God was good. They felt God was out to get them. And to be honest, I know exactly what that is. Because I lived that way for a long time myself. I suspect that's how some of you view God too. Our job is to try to not tick God off. Let's keep God cool, calm, and collect. Not draw any attention to ourselves. And hopefully on judgment day, we'll sneak into heaven. You may not know it, but some of you may despise God's blessing and despise God's authority because you think God is an evil force looking to get you, looking for a reason to take you out. Hebrews wants to use the story of the children of Israel to teach us a deeper, fuller truth. Forty years after Jesus crucified and resurrected, the writer of Hebrews wants us to take us behind the curtain and look at the, good, the gift the good father desires for us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, he's talking about the people of Israel, the second generation that enters the promised land. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Joshua faithfully leads the people to the promised land, but it wasn't enough. Even while the people were in the promised land, even while the people had so many blessings in their hearts and life, they still wanted to go back to Egypt. And this is hard to comprehend because you and I talk about going home, and that's a positive thing. These people were talking about going back to the identity as slaves. They're in the midst of God's blessing and say, I want something different. Joshua gave these people a form of rest, but not the ultimate rest. And so this whole promised land business is actually a foreshadowing of what's to come. Who's the Bible all about? Jesus. Yeah, that's not a trick question. Come on. It's about Jesus. That's right. Always say Jesus. Because if you say Jesus, no one's going to give you a bad mark. So you can still say Jesus, just with confidence. So the Bible's all about Jesus. By the way, Joshua in Hebrew is translated Jesus in Greek. And they both have the same meaning, the one who saves. So this entire surrounding story surrounding Joshua and the promised land is actually a foreshadowing of what's coming. Joshua was one like Jesus, but he's not Jesus. The promised land was a place of rest, but it's not the rest of God's kingdom. Follow? Next verse. There remains then a Sabbath rest. That word Sabbath actually means rest. So there remains then a rest rest, like rest squared or rest doubled. I don't know. Sabbath rest. For the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest, also rest from his own work, just as God did from his. Now, if you want to know what this verse is about, look at what's repeated four times. Rest, rest. For God's rest, also rests from his own work. When God created the world, he worked six days and he rested the seventh. God was establishing this pattern for us. And when he called the people out into the wilderness and he gave them the Ten Commandments, one of those commandments was to rest. In the modern church, we have made this all about physical relaxation or not going to work. But this is far less than what God is trying to teach us about his kingdom here. 
when you say to a group of ex-slaves that they are to rest in this new kingdom as this new people of God, you are teaching those people a profound truth. God is saying you can rest, and by so doing, he's saying this. I have the universe, not you. And you keep trying to sit in my chair. God is saying, I sit on the throne of all creation, not you. You can rest. God is saying, you no longer have to work so hard in an effort to control everything. I work on your behalf. You can rest. You were once a slave who worked to avoid the consequence, whether it's the whip of a slave master or whether it's trying to control my finances or trying to control my children or trying to control my spouse. He says, today you can rest. One theologian defines biblical rest this way. It's a place of blessing where there is no more striving but only relaxation in the presence of God and in the certainty that there is no cause for fear. Friends, for some of you in the room, if you could somehow get this, it would change your entire family. No cause for fear. So you see, rest is actually belief. If unrest is unbelief, rest is actually belief. Belief that God can what you can't. And some of you aren't believing that. And that's why you're not at rest. Belief that God will what you aren't strong enough to will. Some of you don't believe that. And that's why you don't have peace. Belief that God's mercy is more powerful than your sin. Some of you don't believe that. And you come in here feeling like a second-class citizen. That's not true. And it's leading you to unrest. Belief that God's grace is more powerful than my guilt. Belief that God's love is actually greater than my bitterness or the wrong that person did to me. Belief that God's plan is actually mightier than my insecurity. Some of you don't have rest because you ultimately don't believe God will take care of your children. Fair? God's kingdom is growing today, friends. And it is expanding, and one of the gifts of the good father for us in his kingdom is he wants us to rest. Rest is still on the table for the good folks that are alive. But what kind of rest is it? Next verse. Let us, therefore, make every effort, strive, that means work hard, to enter that rest. Now, let's just pause. Because I know that in our modern church, everybody wants to say, you know, hey, we don't have to work for anything for God. Well, that's hogwash. That's not even true. Hogwash is something my grandpa said. I don't even know what it means. But anyway, that, that's, that's, that's true. It's just not true. So I'm not talking about salvation here. That's not what I'm talking about. And I think you'll, if you'll hear me out, you'll understand. Anybody tried to stop believing something they believe? Does that make sense? That's work. That is hard work. 
And so what the writer is saying, make every effort to enter that rest, to believe, so that no one will fall by following their examples of disobedience. Scripture is teaching us temptation is fundamentally about unbelief. And that is why what they saw in their forefathers. Temptation is to not believe that God will keep his promises. The places you're tempted in your life are these. God will not do for us and our money what, we, what he said he's going to do. The temptation is to believe that what God said related to sexuality, he actually meant that. And the temptation is to sort of chuck that to the side. The temptation is to not believe what God said about forgiveness and his promises about forgiveness, not just for me receiving it, but for me forgiving you. Temptation is to not believe that God will take care of your marriage or take care of your children or take care of your relationship. Friends, unbelief is thinking God is disconnected from my life and not able to understand my life or give a, whatever word, care about my life or to be empathetic to who I am and what I struggle with. That's what temptation is. So the writer of Hebrews, for the ending of this discussion, drops a bomb on us about this whole unbelief and temptation and rest. Check this out. Therefore, he says, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. What word is that? Say it. Firmly. Okay, this time I want you to say it. Now listen, I've tried this in the early service and people didn't do it. Would you make a fist with me? You don't have to hold it up. Just make it in your lap. Now let's read it together. Listen. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold to the faith we profess. No more insecurity, wifey, 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 none of that stuff. This is not snowflake world. This is firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who doesn't get us. Huh? You don't have a high priest who doesn't get you people and doesn't know what your problems are. You really think you're that original? We're not. In fact, it goes a little further. But we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way, ready? Unbelief in every way, just as you are, Tom. Yet he's without sin. There's a difference between me and him. So what does that mean? Listen, Christian. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Not weak need, not insecurity, but bring it, you know, with confidence. Let's bring the, with confidence that we can approach them with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. All temptations about unbelief. God doesn't care for me. God doesn't know what's best for me. God won't help me. God doesn't have to pay my bills. Jesus was tempted just like we are, and yet he didn't give in to his unbelief. In Matthew 4, he's tempted. You remember this? He's led into the wilderness by the devil. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what that means theologically, but all I know is he's led in the wilderness by the devil. And the devil says to Jesus, hey, if you're the son of God, by the way, he had just been told he was the son of God at his baptism, but if you're the son of God, tell these stones here to become bread. This temptation is not about food. The temptation is to believe that God won't provide for you. Anybody else have that temptation? Of course you do. Because you're part of the human race, most, most of you. Second temptation, Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple, says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. The angels will come and rescue you. This temptation isn't about faith. This temptation is to believe that ultimately God will not protect you. Anybody else wrestle with that one? Third temptation, the devil takes Jesus to the top of a high mountain. He says to Jesus, you get all this stuff. I'll give it to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. 
This temptation isn't about power. This temptation is to believe, listen, the temptation is to believe that God is not worthy of my loyalty and worship and followership. Anybody else wrestled with that one or is it just me? So when Hebrews says Jesus is a high priest who understands the unrest that comes from temptations from our unbelief in God, it is affirming all of Scripture. And because of what Jesus endured, his teaching on the topic carries a heavy weight for me. After Jesus walks through all of the Matthew 4 temptation, now he says something that maybe you've heard your entire life but have never understood, but now you're ready to understand it for the first time. Listen, Jesus says, so come to me. All of you who are absolutely exhausted and burdened, you understand now, right? He's not touched talking about people that need a nap. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and what will we get, Jesus? Rest. What do you mean? Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find Rest, not for your body, for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And now maybe for the first time you can actually understand what that means. What he's saying is, believe. God is who he says he is and God will do what he said he's going to do. Believe. That's a place of rest. Unbelief, friends, will rob you of your rest. It just will. Unbelief in God will make your soul weary. And for some of you, you may be slapped, wore out, tired because you've stopped believing. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm, there it is again. And secure. I love those words. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, entered on our behalf. You see this entered, uh, who went before us thing? See that little word right there, that little clause? In the Greek, that's actually one word. It's prodomos. Prodomos is a nautical term. And it's used to describe these little boats that when a larger ship was coming into a harbor, these little prodomos, these little boats, would guide this larger ship into the harbor so it could be docked. You follow what I'm saying? And so they would come into the harbor, and there would be rocks maybe on one side, and maybe a reef over here on another, or maybe this person built their boat dock too far out. You know, whatever it is, you know, they're, they're coming in. And these prodomos would actually guide this ship safely into the harbor so it could find rest. And if you'll allow me, I think, I think what this is saying is Jesus is our prodomos. And he's doing his best to guide you and to guide me safely into harbor. But in order for prodomos to work, we have to believe is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he's going to do. That's rest wish it for you, and you can wish it for me, and for our children, and for our marriages, rest, because we believe.
Thank you, Lord, for calling us to be a people of belief. Thank you, Lord, for the high honor of being able to gnaw on such significant truths from Scripture. Lord, I don't know what everybody else in the world is doing for this last few minutes. But for me, Lord, having this discussion with my friends about what true rest is, thinking about temptation and unbelief, Lord, I want to believe. I want to believe. And the areas of my life that seem like you have not, are not aware of or you've lost control or maybe you're not paying attention to, Lord, that's my unbelief and I repent. I repent of those areas. I just want to believe. Worrying about our bodies or worrying about our kids or worrying about, Lord, I just want to believe. I want to believe. Worrying about your plan for our lives, we just want to believe. You're beautiful to us. We want to be your people. Call us to be a people of faith, a people who believe in your name. Amen.